Welcome to St. Florian's, the podcast that tells the stories of those who serve the common good. I'm your host, Father Matthew Young. Welcome. St. Florian is the patron saint of firefighters, chimney sweeps, and soap makers. I still don't know any chimney sweeps or soap makers, so we're going to continue our conversations with firefighters and other public servants and hear their stories, talk a little faith, and have some real open and honest conversations about this thing called life. So today I sit down with our special guests, Chris and Kelly Hall. Chris serves the common good as a sheriff's deputy with the Boone County Sheriff's Department, located in Northern Kentucky, right across from Cincinnati, and Kelly is a paralegal in the same area. They've been married for over 20 years now, and I actually had the privilege of preaching at their wedding a long time ago. They have three children, Jackson, who is now almost 20, 20 years old, uh, a daughter, Peyton, who is 17, and Everett, who is 14. Chris, Kelly, welcome to St. Florian's. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's great to see you both and to be with you. And looking back, you were married 20 years ago, which got me to thinking that I'm not sure that I know how you all found each other in the first place. And was it on like farmersonly.com or or where did, how did you all meet in the first place? Well, and kind of ironic, we graduated from the same high school together. Um, both went to Connor High School in Hebron, Kentucky. Um, graduated the same year. Had very mutual friends, but we really didn't hang out with any each other. Um, kind of had a crush on her in high school. And uh, a couple years later when I was in college, I had some tickets to the Nutcracker. And we ran across each other in the mall of all places and finally got the courage to ask her out. And So you said, hey, do you want to go to the Nutcracker? He called me like two days later. <laughs> two days later. Okay. So so both of you, so, so you start dating and marriage comes along and, and, and all of a sudden it seems like yesterday, which it's not, but both of you are in vocations as a paralegal and as a police officer that stereotypically claims that divorce rates are extremely high. And people used to go around, talking heads used to go around saying 65 to 75% of marriages involving someone who works in law enforcement would end in divorce. And we, I think we've debunked those statistics. It's thankfully not as high as, as that and never really was. And I never re- really believed all those numbers in the first place because I would see and meet people. And I'm thinking they're still together. They're still together. They're still together. The research shows that it's much lower than that. But that being said, and we are going to talk about some of this today. The stress of public service often does take its toll. So now that you've been married for two decades and now that you're entering uh, this probably what is the second half of your lives, think about that, right? What has sustained you both in your marriage? I think I would say it's our communication. Um, Probably the fact that I've worked second and third shift the majority of the career and we don't spend time together. I'm just kidding. Um, but no. Really? <laughs> well, I just think it's easier for us to have our space, but also come together and be together during that time. We don't overlap each other too bad. We miss each other just the right amount. So it must have been the excellent homily that I preached at your wedding that has... Oh, probably not. Of course. <laughs> no, but it's the communication that we have and it really senses is teamwork knowing that if I'm working second or third shift, she knows she has to help with the kids and do dinners. And then when she's at work, then I would compliment and doing that. But the communication, just working as a team, is I think what's been our, our key success. 
So let's get right to it. In the last 10 years, on average, a police officer, uh, a police officer per week has been killed on our, na- on our nation's roadways. Uh, between 2011 to 2020, 50 deaths per year. And so out of 1,387 officer line of duty deaths in that time period, 286 of them were due to vehicle crashes. That's 21%. And of that, uh, 8% of them were people that were struck by a vehicle while working. So Kelly, back in October, your husband was deploying stop sticks because his agency was involved in a police pursuit. Now, stop sticks are and were invented to end pursuits because the fleeing vehicle runs over the sticks. Theoretically, their tires are punctured and the chase ends much sooner. And we would like to think everybody lives happily ever after. Not always the case, though. And in this case, though, the suspect vehicle struck Chris instead of the sticks, knocked him up on the hood as in a high rate of speed, injured him, and then continued on. So tell us what getting that phone call was like. I don't know. Like, he called and he was like, so don't freak out. I'm okay. But, and he kind of kept saying, you know, he was hit by a car. And I'm thought, oh, he's in his cruiser. You know, this is normal. And then the noise just kind of hit, like, oh, he was hit by a car. And then I think I was just stunned. I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know how to react. And I didn't know how to gather myself for the kids to be able to react properly. So, you know, he said he was okay. And then he called back again and said, I'm in the ambulance. I'm okay. He texted me. We have a little fun text that we send. And he said, and I was like, okay, I'm okay. And then when I saw him in the trauma bay and he was making some Funny jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, we're, we're, we're good. We can. We I, was, can. I was trying. <laughs> Chris, tell us about the injuries you sustained. Um, so in deploying the stop sticks, the, the, sub, the suspect vehicle intentionally struck me. It wasn't like an accident. I mean, he intentionally rammed and struck me. Um, I sustained, um, I had, was taken to the hospital, like in trauma bay. I had multiple leg injuries to my, to particularly my right side. Um, multiple injuries on my left torso. I'd have to say my entire torso was black and blue and swollen. I know for, I want to say three days, I couldn't move without any assistance at all. Um, on top of that, I've got some shoulder issues as well. I'm working through that now, but, uh, the fact that I'm actually going to walk away with really any surgeries without any surgeries is just a miracle in of itself. It sure is. It, It had to be horrifying though, to have your life flash before your eyes like that in a matter of one second, three seconds, five? I mean, it seems like some eternity that, or, or how do you describe that? It, it's both, actually. Um, I, I can think how fast it happened, but at the same time, I can slow it down. And I, as, as weird as it is, I even remember putting my hands out, bracing for impact. And in that moment, I even thought, why are you doing this? Right. You're not going to stop. Like, this not, isn't going to happen. You really are not Superman. You can't I, stop no, a speeding bullet. No. And I see, I could see the BMW logo on the car. It was that close. And then the moment I'm thinking, why are you doing this? This isn't going to work. And then as I was rolled multiple times and, and I remember laying in the middle of the roadway, I'm thinking that this really just happened. So again, it happens in a flash and it literally, I would have, I would not have anticipated the car doing what it did. And then I just, in the blink of an eye, there it is. And I'm looking at a logo on a car and thinking, oh, no, this is, that was it. It was that fast. It's it's amazing to me to think, of course, the whole incident itself didn't happen in two or three seconds. But just how much our lives 
are radically changed from time to time within the matter of just a couple seconds like that. And and people can say, well, you never know what's going to happen. Well, that no shit. We, <laughs> right. Right. We right. do know that. And, and yet here we are, right? And so, I mean, I think that uh, it's a, it's just that kind of gut punch, kick in the stomach. Your husband goes out to serve the common good that day and winds up in a level one trauma center. And he wasn't even supposed to be working. <laughs> Yeah, let's just put that out there, right? You're, you're supposed to be off. Well, which after and after almost 20 years, in the amount of critical incidents and experience, and only as a supervisor and a patrol deputy and a traffic deputy, I've gone through many critical incidents in my time. And you know, you talk about how you have to make these decisions in such a, a split second. And this was, again, it's just mind-boggling to me how fast it happens. It had to feel good, Kelly, though, when you, we started talking about marriage and communication and when this incident happens the first thing he wants to do is communicate with you yes i think he knows that if somebody had shown up i probably would have had a little bit more of a what's the word i'm thinking of? i think the way she's trying to say is she doesn't handle stress and like when things kind of go off key or off plan a little bit, she doesn't. Why don't you let her speak for herself? As well, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I get a little off the rails. So the fact that he called, the fact that he, I could tell he was normal. I could tell he was himself. That it made me at ease. Now it didn't hurt my heart. I mean, it just right. or helped my heart. I just I needed to see him, and when I saw him, it was better. Absolutely. So, so now I said. Is that the first time you were ever physically injured at work? Significant? No. Yeah, this was uh, anything that I've been critically injured injured at the line in the line of duty. Um, so that's why it was. And again, my first thought was I have to call her because I'm immediately picturing the sheriff going to the front door. It's going to be midnight, and they're knocking on the door. And you know, from your service, you know that's not good. It's horrible. You know, and they would know without even words being said. And I could in that moment, I could picture her breaking down and the tears. So I remember screaming at somebody, go to my car and get my phone. And there I am in the middle of the road getting first aid and I'm making the phone call. So this isn't the first time you made a phone call like that. You were in Washington, D.C., if I'm not mistaken, at the White House even, right, on 9-11. That is correct. I was at the time that before I started my career with the sheriff's office, I worked for the uh, United States Secret Service Uniform Division was stationed at the White House, three weeks out of training. Um, she is pregnant at the time with our oldest son, who was due, actually, that day. And as the attacks were emerging, um, I'll never forget, I had just gone on break, and the Pentagon gets hit. We're in utter chaos at the White House, and I made a quick phone call to her. I said, I love you, and tell our son, our unborn son, I love him, and I hung up on her. And I don't think You couldn't have stayed on the phone a little bit longer? <laughs> I mean, Really? <laughs> We were a little busy at the White House. I was on bed rest, so I had right. no idea what was going on. And then and you like, dropped that. <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. Okay, my bad. <laughs> I mean, if that ever happens again, you really should consider staying on the phone just a little bit longer. Right? Well, we've had two of these now, so we'll, hopefully we won't have a third. We, let's, let's hope we don't have a, a third one at all. What was that experience like? You, you said it was chaotic. I'm sure that's an underestimation. I can't even. I've thought for years to try to word it, and I don't know that I can. 
Um, I, at the time, I'm 23 years old. I'm young. I'm green. I don't think I'm all that mature. And the chaos, people running, screaming. And, and I remember at one point getting on the north lawn of the White House, you could look over the West Wing and you could see the smoke coming right above the the, the, the emblem of the United States. And just it's one of those picturesque moments, you know, when your, your child's born. That, that will be ingrained in my head forever. And the fact that we had to shut down as many blocks as we did within Washington, D.C. and just push everybody back, it just was utter chaos. And, you know, you, like you, you do the training that you're trained to do, and then you deal with you know, the afterthought later. But uh, it was just utter chaos. I, I find it amazing that, you know, we're going to talk about some realities from a spiritual perspective as well in our conversations today. But it... It's interesting to me, I, I look back on the incidents of 9-11, and I think about on September 12th, so many people around our country and in our cities and our towns and our communities were together in a sense of coming together, not really having, having more questions than we did answers. And there's always those events in all of our lifetimes that... Uh, that are those where were you at when this happened kind of events. But recently, I think with the global pandemic and some other things, I don't see us coming together as a people in the face of disaster or different things. And do you all notice that as well? Like it's Absolutely. I couldn't yeah, I, I think totally they were agree. more divisive than we have ever been. Right. And and what is that? That we just can't we just can't see the the essential, I think, I'll tell you what I think it is as a priest, as a, as, just a, as a man, is that for some reason or another, we cannot see the goodness in other people, especially if we don't like you. I don't like or something. I, I, I think we've become more of, it's like you said, it's the lack of love for and respect for somebody else. It has to be my way or the highway. And we've, we've drifted to that for some reason. And I don't know why. It just seems it just seems bizarre to me that uh, because I saw a lot of people in this incident with with you uh, being run over by this vehicle that it did bring a lot of people in your lives together. What did it feel like to be cared for? Um, it was amazing to see everybody want to help us out, take care of us, be there for him, support us, give us food. Yeah, I've been like, some, have us some more food. <laughs> There was way so much right? food <laughs> and some bourbon, maybe. But it there was, was. <laughs> it was yeah. it was amazing, and I was thankful for that and thankful for the support, especially with him and everything else. You hear about it when you're a spouse of a you know, first responder, the thin blue line, and everybody being there. And it was amazing to be on the receiving end of that and know that it's there for you if you need it. Yeah. Did you have people that? Um, Every once in a while, I notice that people just can't help themselves, and and they go, okay, well, now here's your casserole, and here's this, and call me if you need anything. But now, what exactly, and they ask you a bunch of questions like you don't know the answer to? Actually, I don't know that we have. Wasn't too bad? No. That's good. Mm. No, I again, piggybacking on that is the support was unbelievable. I think the day I left the hospital, my phone, I didn't answer. I had, I think, over four or 500 text messages alone. You had emails, you had uh, Facebook messages. It was just, and I literally took the time over the next few days since I couldn't move, and I literally wanted to respond to everybody individually um, because I, you know, they took the time to reach out to me. And again, everybody's given me if you guys need anything. So it was support was unbelievable. So it was nice to see everybody really come together there. 
So I said physically injured before for a reason, and because there is a side of all of this, these kinds of traumatic incidents, like the one that you both have just gone through, that compiled with years of other incidents, trauma or otherwise, or observing incidents that other people go through, begins to have an effect on many people as well. So secondary traumatic stress is a thing. Sometimes it's also known as compassion fatigue. Uh, Secondary traumatic stress is what I would call the negative cost of caring. And it can land you physically and emotionally exhausted. It's when your give-a-damn meter is busted. I, I, I just, I can't anymore kind of stuff. And it's when... When it's at its worst, it diminishes our ability to empathize, to be compassionate for others. It, it, it limits our ability to love each other, uh, and especially in our most significant of relationships. And studies show that one-third of law enforcement spouses or significant others also show signs of secondary traumatic stress. Perhaps not the time is too soon from this incident, but after 20 years of public service, are you feeling this at all? Or ever do? I do about every other day in a priesthood, but no. <laughs> there are times I have in my career. Um, I'm not going to sit up here and deny that I haven't. There are times right. you just kind of get, you. okay, I'm going to this house, this address, this person, yet again for the same call for the 10th time this week, and you go in and you're like, oh, here we go again. Um, there, But I will say that it seems like in my career, every time I kind of got to that point, something would happen and it would kind of reset me. Um, whether it would be you ran across a, a family that had um, run into unfortunate circumstances and all of a sudden you were doing everything you can to help them and then you kind of realized, oh, okay, it's not so bad after all. Look at this family, what happened to them. And you just, it felt like it would just kind of reset every once in a while. But it's hard, you know, especially in, in the line of work that we do and the negative. But doesn't that sort of diminish your reality, though? It's sort of could be like saying, well, it's as bad, but it's not as bad as someone else. So doesn't sometimes that make people pretend and not deal with it? It, it, I'm, it does. I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That's sort of my pattern. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can speak from the voice of experience. Uh, I think that uh, when, I th- when I think about watching married couples involved in this is that the, one of the secondary traumatic stress things for spouses is often this I'm tired of the one I love the most always gone serving always being called out for this um, I'm tired I, these people might be great people but do they do they get him every day every night yeah I have to agree with that I mean especially as he's gotten higher and you know and people trust him they come to him they want his opinion. They value his opinion. So his phone goes off a lot. Right. <laughs> Not because, and I understand, and I want him to answer, and I want him to be there for them. But sometimes it's like, we're in the middle of dinner, like just 15 minutes. Let's have a meal and no phones. And he just can't not answer. It is it is challenging. I, I will admit there are times that I probably sacrifice the family time because I feel the need to, you know, even on my shift, I have 24 people that are looking at me asking questions. And then I have other people on other shifts who are doing the same. And I am guilty of that sometimes. And it, it does not cause friction, but it does create some arguments every once in a while. I would imagine that. it would lead to some aspects of some natural conflict. 
It, of oh, course it would. Yeah, I mean, we've had we've had a few arguments over it, and you know, then on top of that, just when you think things settle down, well, then your phone's ringing again, and he, you get called out for a, a fatal crash in the middle of the night. Off we go again. So, I mean, we've had our moments with that, and I've tried to do better in the past couple of years with that. I'm trying to learn to delegate a little more and let other people, hopefully I've groomed them properly, and they've been able to come up and do the job. So it's hard sometimes to do that. Do you have ways of noticing stress in each other when something's quite not right? Yes. Say more about that. Um, I just, he gets out on edge. He gets a little chippy. He gets a little moody. And his body language, I mean, it gives him away, you know. So I can, I can read him and know that that's coming. Doesn't mean that I can stop it, but, right. you know. But you can be empathetic to it. Sometimes. I bet more than often than not. <laughs> and so. she is. And I would say conversely the same. You know, you can, she's, the body language is definitely the dead giveaway. And she kind of has this look she'll give me. And I know that it's, uh-oh, it's coming. Right. So so how do you deal? I mean, what are the, what are the positive things? How do you, how do you deal with the realities of you have, okay, so marriage is a challenging vocation to start with. Parenting is number two. Uh, Kelly, you're working behind the scenes in the legal field, prepping and getting and and really people's cases. There are different aspects of navigating through the legal system uh, depend on the work that happens behind the scene. There, there's some stress there as well. How how do you to deal with uh, making sure that the healthier patterns are better than the unhealthier patterns? Again, not to be cliche, I think it's communication. Um, I've always said for years, just as an example, there are things about my job that I don't want her to know. I don't want her to hear, but I know for my health and to be better for myself, which means ultimately I'm better for my family, I have to talk about them. She doesn't want to hear about how we gave CPR to an infant who passed away, but she listens to it. And that's my therapy. That's how I'm able to get out. And then I think she becomes not only empathetic to me, but understands what the stressors I'm going through. I'd be like, $90, please. <laughs> Plus copay it's, and it's a shopping fun, trip. It's funny because I, I've told people <laughs> in the past, they ask about how you, you, you navigate this career and you avoid PTSD and other issues. And I will always say it's communication. She doesn't want to hear it, but you have to, you have to talk about these things. So many officers that I know, you probably know, they bottle these things. They don't talk about them, then which leads to other unhealthy habits, stressors, that's which leads to the divorce, the alcoholism, you know, obesity, things of those nature. You have to talk about these things. And that's, to me, again, I hate to say communication, but sure. that's what it comes down to. Well, I wouldn't hate to say it at all. It sounds like it's a, an essential component of what makes you all you all. Oh, yeah. We, I think we set aside time to have that, too. Like, we have our day dates where we, you know, grocery shop and have meals or we come a go long on way the yeah. day date to Kroger, <laughs> you know, we have walks and so where we can yeah. just talk and get things out and not bottle them up. No, I will say, you know, early on in the career, it, it was a process to get to this point. It wasn't, uh, you know, I look back at years earlier, early in the marriage and we weren't there yet. And just, you know, realizing as, as you grow together as a couple, you know, that's why I think we've, we've developed that routine. So let's, you started to bring this up about going to the same call for service from the same people. And I've often told first responders that it's easy for you 
to get a tainted view of society. That is, no one calls 911 on a good day. And, you know, and, and you basically are continually exposed to people who are having a bad day or their worst day. And it's easy to begin thinking that everyone must be this way. It's easy to start forgetting that from a spiritual perspective that these two are God's children. And considering many first responders, I think, live in this bubble. I'm not talking about Fort Thomas. I'm talking about a bubble bubble where they are mostly exposed to other first responders all the time. It starts to get toxic. Us, them, these people or, or whatever. How, how do you keep from getting jaded because you're not seeing the majority of the population? Well, ironically, I'm actually one of our de-escalation trainers. And one of the first things we, we break the class down is we talk about the empathy. And you said it exactly. People are calling us because they have no one else to call. They have nobody else they can depend upon, nobody else that can solve their problems. So while it may seem minuscule to us, it's their world. They have nobody else they can turn to. So we have to understand that in our approach. Hopefully that helps bring the empathy out a little bit. The job... I'm oh, sorry, reset, sorry. Oh, we're good. So we're talking I about... I had a train of thought, I lost it. That's right. We're talking about avoiding becoming jaded and... and because of being exposed to the same people again and again in a smaller portion of the society that, you know, the majority of people don't ever call at all. So I think I will say a benefit of the pandemic that we have found is that I think people have become very supportive of law enforcement. I think since the pandemic has started, and if you want to go into, you can talk about the riots of last year, the protests, how the anti-police sentiment was rising through the country. In the last two years, we've had more people come to our department bringing gifts, uh, food. You know, of course, we love food. Uh, The support has been more, I would say, in those two years, more than my previous 18 years. So that has been very recharging for many of us in this field to prevent that jadedness that that you develop. Are there less and less people wanting to come into law enforcement? Yes, we're having a very hard time with that, I think, because of the... um, those movements, I think we used to have hundreds of applicants. I mean, we're getting less than 100 now, 50-ish is, is like a high number now. So it, it's, you know, there's other issues at play, you know, lack of benefits sometimes pay. Those are those are obviously big issues, but we're just not getting the numbers we used to get. And it's sad because we, you get into this job because you have that feeling for calling. You want to truly help people. And, you know, it's it's hard to maintain that throughout your career. But again, I work in a fortunate community that reminds us all the time how blessed we are and how appreciative they are of us. Kelly, when you think about the things that Chris sees on more than one occasion on, on from time to time in the line of work, and do you ever get tired of those people getting to come home to? In other words, bringing some of those things home? How's that play out for you? No, I just, I think because we have developed that communication, you know, I need him to come home. I need him to talk to me. I need him to let it go, release it. And I don't retain it. I mean, it either goes over my head or in one ear and out the other. So 
it's easier for me to do that. And if, if it gets off his chest and he doesn't bring it home, he doesn't wear it, then I'll keep doing it for him. So yeah, there's that old um, psychological line, you know, that certain things do not get to live in the house rent free. You know, and, and if you can bring it home, deal with it, let it go, that kind of that kind of process, I think, sounds sounds pretty. And I think what's helped healthy. us too is we're very engaging with our children. We're very involved in their activities. Um, both of our boys are playing high level baseball, competitive baseball, travel. I helped coach my Everett's team. The young one helped Jackson when he was younger. Our daughter does cheerleading, competitive cheerleading. So we're always involved doing those things too. So that's another outlet that we can build a sense of community and family with other people with, and we can talk to and just stay busy and feel like we're continuing to, to help. Well, you know, it's interesting because you started talking about uh, the different things that you see and, and how um, sort of confusing that can, that can be. And it's no doubt that we live in a world of a lot of confusion and a, and a huge amount of of brokenness, but you might have answered just one of your own questions. I read in an article online that one of the things you said that you're searching for in all of this, this specifically this incident that happened with you being hit by the vehicle, are some answers to the question, why? And you said, quote, we all know these kids, these are kids that had stolen multiple cars, firearms, running from police, and now here we are running over people, running over police officers. I just want to know what got you to this point in life? And so the question I was going to have for you is, have you found any answers yet? But it seems like that one of the answers is the absence of some of the things you just discussed. And I can attest to that, not only on my incident, but just even routine calls for service that we handle. The, the lack of having a sound-based, involved, loving family is... I think another reason we're, we're running into problems in this country. It just, you can see it on our level. It's, we're eye level to it and it's deteriorating in front of us and we're getting the problems that we're getting because of that. Do you think um, growing up in a uh, household of someone in law enforcement that your children had any kind of worry that when you go off to work that this was their last day of, of seeing him? Um. I think it's always one of those things that you know it can happen, but you don't think it's going to happen to you. You don't think it's ever going to come into your house. So you just kind of be like, not my community, not my dad, you know, but right. then it happens to you. And now you're like, oh no. Like, so I think it's a reality for them that has set in. And I think it will even set in further when he does go back to work officially on the road. You know, especially for me, I think, I'm going to text him. I'm going to call him. And when he doesn't answer to me right away, now I'm going to panic and I'm going to freak out. And I think we'll have a little bit of stress dealing with that. And they will too. But I think we'll discuss it. We'll talk about it. Well, I think the, when I came home from the hospital and my children looked at me, it became very real for them. We've always had a rule in our house. Before you leave, it's hugs and kisses and I love you. And I would joke, well, you never, because our daughter sometimes does not want to, of course, kiss dad because... You know, just he's being a teenage girl, as I'm told. And I would always joke, well, you never know. Your dad may not come home. Well, that's not a joke. <laughs> that's a terrible joke. <laughs> I'm not a funny person. Um, and But, you know, just a little thing we play, but it came home to roost that night. And yeah. the look on her face and, you know, especially our older two, it, it 
made it very real for them. And I think, well, we again, we talk about it, but now we're actually living it. Yeah, and we have friends and others that that was their experience for whatever reason, you know, and, and we know how empathetically watching others and being present with others, just how gut-wrenching uh, that experience really is. And I think that um, it, it sort of leads me in thinking about the why questions. Why do people wind up in situations like this? You know, we see this... Um, we see so many young people now, I think, that are exposed to so much pain in their lives way too young. Too much brokenness, too much painfulness, too much trauma, too much abuse, too much whatever. And then part of the answer when they don't perform well is to blame them moralistically, like, oh, you lazy ass, you need to you know, get a job, this kind of stuff. And, and not knowing what they've maybe been through. And there is a certain amount of of laziness in, in, in us all. But I think that that's why some of the things become readily that people want to use them, medicate yourself, dope yourself up, that kind of stuff to avoid the reality of the situation you live in. And you get stuck in the middle of that and having to deal with it. You know, the temptations are hard enough even when you do come from a background that you're lucky enough and blessed enough to have two parents in a home, um, a, a loving, stable environment. And when that's not happened, and, and even situations like that doesn't always work out for people. You know, so I think it's, it's, it's quite challenging uh, to be able to, to be a young person in this world but, and to think that you know, these, weren't, these weren't seasoned criminals that this whole incident is about. This is... These are very young people. These weren't 50-year-olds. The, the scary part, um, you know, they're younger teenagers, and I, I would say seasoned, I would almost call them seasoned because okay. they've been doing this for months, not only to our county, but to neighboring counties in Kentucky, southwest Ohio, and southeast Indiana, doing it for months. And the level of the crime they're committing. And I understand, you know, kids will be kids and they do some dumb sure. things, but to this level, and I think like you referenced my quote, I'm thinking, okay, as a kid, I know I maybe did a few stupid things, but I know I didn't steal any cars. I didn't run from the police. I right. It's didn't not soaping someone's people. window or throwing eggs at their right. house. It, it just, where, where did, and, and how they did, it just didn't happen once. This happened multiple, multiple, and it just kept, it's going for months. And we have so many jurisdictions that are, they're still trying to piece this whole thing together. That's just how large it is. So to be so young and so involved, again, I, I hate, I'll use your word seasoned. That's what's frightening to me is they didn't just get into like one guy, got a bad experience, exposed. This has been a process for them for apparently a while now. And that's that's what's concerning to me. And I guess that's the question that I'm searching for is how did you get so broken to this point? Not a lot of answers to that question, though. I have zero answers for it. Zero. So the the but one of the answers that doesn't seem to be working is just to just try harder at what's not really working. You well, know? Agreed. I mean, it, I mean, something has got to drastically change somehow. I'm not again twenty years in law enforcement. I'm not saying the ju the justice system, the juvenile justice system is perfect. But I mean, are there changes that need to be made? Absolutely. You know, do I have the answers? No, I don't. But I know that. The kind of the way we're going, it's not working. 
We need to reevaluate and maybe rethink how we're doing things. So if we put a spiritual twist on it and we said that there was a, 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 a hole, if you will, a dark hole, a, a missing component, a, um, an, a spiritual illness or whatever, when I see adults, you know, friends that we have, uh, adults um, who snipe and bicker at each other and, and um, do not conduct themselves in ways that are respectful towards others, I'm not sure we can all of a sudden be surprised that their children don't either. No, I would 100% agree. I mean, I've even, again, going to my time of experience, I'm to the point where I've arrested several kids. Like, during my career, I arrested mom or dad. Now I'm arresting their kids. So Welcome to being older. Right. And, you know, you sit there and you're thinking, that's terrible that I've arrested both. And then you immediately think, well, that child grew up in that household. That was their normal. They're doing what they learned to do. That's all they're doing exactly what they've watched and learned for the last 20 years. So I can't be surprised that I'm arrested them because that's all they know. And that's, again, another frustrating part of the job. How are your uh, children doing post-accident now with this experience? Um, I think Jackson probably is the one who is the most angry. I mean, would have the most anger about it. The other two, I think... They've moved past it. They have let it absorb them inside them, and they don't talk about it. You know, I don't think they have any ill will. They just kind of, okay, we're going to move on. Like, I don't think it's affected them. I think that given the, the how, I don't say quickly I've recovered. I'm still recovering, but um, not having to have multiple surgeries, things like that. So being able to kind of be normal, I think, has allowed the, the younger two to get back into their normal. Um Again, our son is 20 years old, soon to be 21. He's a little idealistic sometimes, and he's wanting to get in law enforcement, of course, despite my advice, which is the same thing my father told me, but you know how that worked out. So I think, you know, having that youth about him, some immaturity, and that anger. So we've tried to talk to him about it, and I, I know he's going to have to work it out himself too. Um, we've had conversations about trial and this and that and you know how this process is going to have to work and it's going to take a long time it's not going to happen tomorrow it's it's you know if it does go to trial we're looking at a year two years it could be it could be quite a lengthy time till it happens and then even after then you still have the healing process after so this is something we're going to it's going to take a while to get to but trying to get him to you know if you've talked about is it's not about the anger here we need to refocus and reharness our energy somewhere else so there's always loss behind anger there's always loss or potential loss behind anger. And I could see where, uh, you know, my dad, whom I love very much, um, nearly could have uh, lost his life. And it, there's there's clearly what I just said, loss behind that. No no wonder someone would be angry. Oh, yeah. No. And, we, and we've talked about, you know, we could sit here and talk about she could have been going to the National Police Memorial next year. Having the kids up, having the full you know police funeral, you start talking all these images and thinking this in your head, and you're just like, no, we're not going to do that. But I think the insight for this, for not only for for Jackson, but for any of us that have to deal with anger from time to time, because we're all not exempt from it. The question is, isn't are you ever going to get angry, or is anger ever going to come your way? The question is, what are you going to do with it? I think that's the big question. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know what to do with it, so I'm going to project it on someone else. I'm going to um, get, go knock someone's head off. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. I'm going to go steal a car. I'm going to go, I have, it, it, it's all related. So the question is, you know, what's he going to do with that? And and how how do you all help him to deal with that? I think through talking, through um, being very honest with the feelings and emotions and saying, well, now what are we going to do with this? I think actually the way you just said that is exactly the question we probably need to ask him. Um, I don't know, we've not danced around it, but I think that kind of, he hits it more head on and he allows him to address. So I understand you're angry, son, but what is this? What are you going to get out of this by being this angry? And that's no question that her and I have talked about ourselves, you know, being angry. What are we going to get out by doing that? We're not going to get anything out of this by, right. by being like that. It's anger so. that gets turned inward leads to depression. And so we've got to do something with it. You know, we've got to do, there, there's a, a Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, who often writes about, uh, what are we going to do with our pain? Because if we don't do so- something with our pain, and whether that pain is self-inflicted or inflicted from someone else, it's still yours. So if we don't do something with our pain, at least two things will happen. Now think about all the people you, you and I know, and including those situations that we're involved in our own lives and our own pain. When you don't do something with it, number one, you will become a miserable person. And if you look back in times that all of us were miserable over something, chances are we didn't do something with our pain. And then number two, you will give that pain to someone else. Misery loves company. And so we got to do something with it. Well, I think for, I know for me on my end is I need to get our family and keep our family on track with what we have been doing. And I think for me, doing my rehab, being positive, setting the example, not getting upset and not turn, letting turn that anger turn as you talk about, I think that's going to eventually bleed into the family and they're going to see that, model it, and practice it. And that's, you know, and I do that also for the guys that I work for the department is I'm not going to come in bitter and upset. It happened. It's a risk that was part of the job. I understand it. I'm not happy about it. I do get angry at times, but sure. you know, I have an opportunity to really, I'd say, affect people. But that's what it is. I can reach so many people, make this uh, turn a negative into a positive, and that's what I'm. That's all I'm trying to do out of this. I think that's called maturity. Well, thank you. I think you know. I think you're starting to get there, friend. I think that I think that's called maturity. I think that that because that's what strong people do. You know, people will often. S- Suggest, and this is the next part I want to talk about because I think there's a spiritual principle involved here of forgiveness. But the that somehow or another, oh well, if you um, forgive or you deal with your pain or you work through your emotions or you or that somehow or another that is your weakness. Actually, I think that's what courageous people do. It's those who are scared that don't deal with those things, and. And the results of not dealing are disastrous. Oh, I would agree. And again, I go back to what we talked about with officers. That's they don't they let that anger manifest within themselves, and it turns to again divorce rates, alcoholism, obesity, and you see how they, they go out of, out of control. And knowing those things, I'm not going to let that happen to my family. It's just not going to happen. I can't let it happen. So 
I brought up the word forgiveness, and after all, this is a Christian program named after a saint, uh, um, and I'm a priest. Y'all are Christians, so I think we should at least talk about forgiveness, and it means different things to different people, and there seems to me to be this um, this predominant feeling in life among many of our friends and acquaintances and, and those we know that that um, that's not really the number one go-to, right? It's like I, I, I get so disappointed and disheartened sometimes when I read, uh, maybe I need to quit reading them, uh, social media postings and things of, of friends, and I think, you know, does that make you feel better to shame and make fun of others and, you know, that kind of thing? It just, it's sort of gross, but I digress. But it, it, but forgiveness really is a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. And it's got to be for your, it's got to be for your benefit. And so when I th- saw the aftermath of what happened to you, and granted that this, was a time of uncertainty and anger. Um, it seems to me that you're really dabbling. When you say, "When I'm going to turn something in from a negative into a positive," that this has got to be in play because forgiveness does not mean forgetting. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for people's actions. But do you think that you and 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 Kelly? I, Chime in here too. Can you all get to a point where whoever these people are that hopefully you never have to have dinner with, maybe you do want to, I, I don't know, but what, because forgiveness is also not reconciliation. Can you get to a point where you don't hold a grudge against them? I don't hold a grudge. I mean, and it's, I'm not saying that. God love you. I, Say that again. <laughs> Did you all hear that? <laughs> I don't hold a grudge. And I don't know that I was ever angry at them I was just indifferent I mean I just and I couldn't let my anger take over because because you hit someone to love I did I mean and he was here I mean and I can't judge them because somebody else will eventually their creator is going to judge them you know so it's not my job to do that so and I had to be able to show the kids that you don't have to hold on to that anger you don't have to hold a grudge to them they hurt your dad they hurt you know could have taken your father from you but He's here. We're going to hold on to that. We're going to take that win, and we're just going to move on. What about you? I think people sometimes equate, as you said, forgiveness means you're okay with it. Yeah, and that's trust not, me, friends. I've known you a long time. Reconciliation. I was not okay with this, um, and I'm not okay with it. Do I forgive? Yes, and I've said it all the time. Like you forgive, but you don't forget. Um, it's life altering. It will. The effects will not only be in the days, the weeks, months, and years to come. There's no doubt at some point, and I don't know how this will affect us down the road. Again, we're going to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't adversely affect us. But eventually, it's one of those things that will never go away. I'll never forget it. I still live it in my head. There are times, sometimes I lay at night, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking about it. That'll never go away. I know it won't. Um, I don't. Again, it's not reconciliation. So I do forgive. Um, I just, I know that I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and lie and act like, you know, well, let's, like you said, let's go to dinner anytime soon. I took an oath to serve. I believe in what we do. I believe in the system and, you know, they're, they're charged 
they've got to go through the process, and I've got to let the process work. You know, I'm, I can sit here and scream, I want them to go to jail for the rest of their life. You know, is that really going to solve the problem? Is that going to make me feel any better? No, it's not. You know, they need to be held accountable for their actions. They're being held accountable for their actions, and that's the best I can ask for. You know, I, again, all I can focus on is our family, um, and I think if we teach our kids that it's okay to forgive but not forget, then that's, that's the difference. And I think, again, I, I just people, I think they equate them as the same, and they're not. No, not at all. And because, you know, the idea of letting go of the resentment, letting go of the parts of the, as Kelly said, the anger, um, because it can lead to, if, if we don't, it can lead to other things. It can lead to anger becoming rage. It can be, become hatred. It can be hurt. And by hurt, I mean a, a, a an emotional or a spiritual injury that, um, that you're wounded and, and wounded, you know, people, uh, when it's not addressed who are in pain, do all sorts of things or resentment or bitterness. And, and what's that going to do? It's going to, well, one, it's going to create unhealthy things for you, you know, and, or it's going to affect relationships. And I think the biggest thing that if, when we fail as a people to forgive, to let go of the resentment, to let go of the anger, to let go of grudges and that kind of stuff, we wind up being imprisoned. We wind up not having freedom because we're holding on to this. Um, but man, that's much harder said than done. I get that. And, and I don't, and it could be a different tale. Uh, I mean, it's, I, it's hard because again, I, I hate to say quickly recovering, but would I have the same tune if I was here in a wheelchair today and not able to walk? I, I don't know. I would probably have a different tune. I don't know that I could get to the point that I am. I know I would get there eventually. It would obviously take a little more time. Um, I, I'm just, again, I'm trying to just, we talk about the rabbit hole. But this is a process. It is. And we talk about, you talked about the rabbit hole. If we let this control us and we live in that area, we go down that hole and we let that anger and that just builds. We've asked ourselves, what's going to come of this? We're just going to get mad at each other. We're going to get angry. Then that turns and our kids see that. Then it just, it becomes a Pandora's box that we can't close. And it destroys the family. And we just, you know, we, we've, we just don't believe in that. We're not going to let it happen. Who taught you those things? Of course you did. No. <laughs> you haven't been in one of my church services in decades. I didn't teach you that kind of stuff. No. So are those values that um, were brought up in upbringing? Um, I hate to say no. It's okay. The, what we want to be is honest. I just I don't remember it being in my upbringing. Um to be honest, I, I mean, my, I had great parents. I mean, yeah. but it wasn't something that was in our upbringing. So how it came about for us, I just think that's who we are, how we wanted to model who we wanted to be. Sure. I, I would say it was definitely my upbringing, having parents and modeled um, the behavior that's, I know dad being in law enforcement, that was, and mom being the supportive spouse, just like Kelly is. You know, it's almost like we're uh, a mirror of what they were. And... Just that's just how we processed. Uh, I watched them, how they handled things, and I think we're very similar in how we do a lot of these things. So the strength, 
um, compassion. And, you know, it, I could see his battles when he had dealing with the same things in his career. So, and how they can persevere and, and make good out of bad things. And so I think that's just contributing to us being able to do it and, and do it better. Well, when you've been through some things, both personally or professionally, as we all go through, if you're healthy and can have some emotional spirituality or some emotional maturity to it, you will have an easier time, a better time of empathizing with others when they go through some crap. Absolutely. Uh, and I mean, it, we, I, we teach that again for even on simple calls for service that um, just like one, we had one last night, we was talking to about a call where he went to a, a death that had happened in a household and, you know, he had the opportunity to speak to the family about a loss that he had just had and he could talk to the family because they just experienced this loss and, you know, correlate that and show the empathy. You know, they're going through a tough time. You just went through a rough time. What a wonderful way to connect as human beings, but to also bridge community and police relations there. That was a wonderful opportunity to do that. So that's the approach we kind of take. And I know I take, why not use that information? I All the time when I'm out dealing with kids, I talk about coaching baseball or that, whatever experiences I can draw from and relate to people and to be empathetic and why not? See, I think this is part of the meat and potatoes or whatever the vegan version is of uh, version is of that. I don't know, but the uh, this is the tofu of whatever that that of what it partly of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think this is this is part and parcel to uh, Jesus talks all the time about forgiveness and and I'm and I'm a little suspect when I don't hear churches and groups talking this and and speaking about it because I know what it can do to our lives when we don't have it. But, I mean, we, we say the Lord's Prayer all the time, you know, forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive others. I mean, we ought to stop saying that if we're not going to do it, you know, or at least try, you know, even though it, it might come back. Or, you know, that, um, that even from the cross, I mean, Jesus himself says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, did they make a conscious act that day to crucify Jesus? Yes. Did these people make a conscious act that day to swerve their car into you? Sure looks that way. But my God, they don't know what they're doing. Because if they know you and they knew you and they knew your children, nobody would make that conscious decision. We sure hope not. not. I hope not. Right? They don't know what they're doing. That's that's the whole point. when we screw up, we don't know what we're doing. And, and so we have this Greek word in the New Testament for forgiveness called a feme, which means literally to set free, to let go, to separate. It's actually the same word used for divorce. It means to separate from. And it's not contingent. Well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. Well, it's, it's not about them. It's about you. You know? You can't carry that burden. Right. I mean, it just, it'll drag you down if you carry it around. Right. I'm going to hold this. It's like, uh, you owe me something, but I don't know exactly what it is. But I'll let you know when I figure it out, and then you can pay up one day, right? It, <laughs> right. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. So, so tell me where you see, have you, have you, um, have you, how have you seen God involved in this situation or the things that, you know, that we've been, Speaking about what, where, where do you see the divine here? Is it in expected ways, unexpected ways? I think the first and clearest answer for me is that I apparently have more work to do on this planet, um, and I'm not. He's not done with me because being a reconstructionist, 
accident reconstructionist and everything that I know about vehicle dynamics and crashes and how this happened, I shouldn't even be alive. There's, there's no other way to put it. And if, if I was able to survive the crash, I should be probably paralyzed. And I'm walking away with not even having a single surgery and maybe only, you know, a couple months of physical therapy. I mean, that in, that in of itself is, is a miracle. That has shown me I'm loved and I have purpose in this life. Not that I didn't believe it before, not that I didn't suspect it, but it just became, it's like a stage curtain, a curtain opened up and it's right in front of you and it's just wowing me. Like, okay, all right, message received. I'm, I've got it. I know what you're, I've got it here. I'm on board, okay? And then on top of that, you add in all the support from the community, the cards, the letters, the the constant messages. And it just, you know, it has sh- told me that living the word treating people with respect, loving other people, it does come around and that there is hope. We can affect people's lives. You can do good in this world. And it doesn't take a whole lot. It really doesn't. So that, that to me, that's the clearest picture I can say. Kelly, where do you see God involved here? Um, he's here. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like, I, I can't. He's here. He wouldn't be here if he didn't want him to be here. You know, he saved him. He brought him. I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm speechless about it. Like, I don't, I don't know. Certainly a, a presence that is is felt. So our time starting to come to a close. I can't thank you both enough for for being here, for sharing your story, for being honest and, and uh, trying to, make heads or tails out of situations that just don't make sense. Well, and I think and here you to are. add what you said is sometimes you can't make head or, sense of, or head or tails of it, and you just have to go with it. And that's just where I'm at. I can sit here and ask why, how, how did I get blessed? I'm here. I've been blessed by the Lord, and go forth and prosper is what I'm going to do. Thank you all so much. Let's uh, Let's close with a... A word of prayer and then we'll we'll make this a wrap. Sounds good. Gracious God, you are our creator and sustainer of all living things. Look with kindness and understanding upon those who serve the common good. We give thanks for people like Kelly and Chris. Watch over them, guide them, and bless them. Give us all your grace to be the best versions of ourselves and not to be overcome by evil, and to live at peace with one another. Be present with all who are struggling, especially from incidents of the past. Shower upon us all the gifts of your Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and the Spirit of joy in your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. I love you both very much. Love you, too. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to St. Florian's with Father Matthew Young, the podcast that tells the stories of those who serve the common good. You can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and about everywhere else I can think of putting it. Until then, this is Father Matthew Young. Thank you for joining us. May God bless us all. 